open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. And this morning we will be completing the study of the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 11. A teaching, an extended teaching of Jesus on prayer. I'd like to begin our time this morning by reading the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 11 in full. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught His disciples. And He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give to him anything because he is his friend, yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened." What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Remarkable passage. And as we begin to look at this, specifically verses 5 through 13. Now, I want to ask you a question. You often hear the word theology bantered around, and we can sometimes be tempted to think that theology is for um, nerdy people like Pastor Daniel and myself, but I'm here to tell you that everyone is a theologian. Everyone has theology. Even an atheist has theology. Theology is simply theos, God, the knowledge of God, what you believe about God. That's theology. Even if you don't believe God exists, that's your theology. And I want to ask this morning, who do you think God is? Specifically, who do you think God is in relationship to you? As I believe that these verses, verses 5-13, through as Jesus continues to answer His disciples' request to teach them, and by extension us, how to pray, resolves around that issue critically. Jesus gives them petitions to pray. Four in particular. We looked at them last week. We were to pray that God would cause reverence for His name to increase. We are to pray that God's kingdom and His rule would come in us and through us and ultimately in the return of His Son. We're to pray that God would give us each day, keep giving us the things we need, our bread. We're to pray that God would relationally restore us to Him through forgiveness for our sins as we are doing the same to others. And we are to pray that God would not be leading us into temptation. Those are the types of things Jesus is teaching His disciples to pray. But the rest of this passage, 
doesn't tell us what to say. Rather, I believe it focuses on our need to understand who God is in relationship to us. Who you think God is, specifically who you think God is in relationship to you, will radically affect your prayer or prayerlessness. I think there are primarily two reasons we don't pray. One, we're not aware of our need. We're self-confident. We think we can handle it. And this passage doesn't really directly address that as much as it addresses, I think, the second reason, which is that we feel frightened, nervous, foolish in coming before God's throne, especially with some of our smaller, less important, as we think them, prayer requests. And so we save prayer for those big things, those big matters. And if we are going to come in prayer, we're going to do it quickly. Kind of like the high priest would do going into the Holy of Holies. Enter in quickly, offer up the prayer, and get out quickly. Because after all, God's serious. I mean, He's running the universe. I can't take up too much of His time. And Jesus is going to insist in this passage that that is the wrong way to view our Father in Heaven. In fact, I really think all of these verses are an unpacking of that radical first word in his prayer that we are to call God Father. What it means that God is our Father and how believing that God is our Father and understanding that God is our Father will inform and affect our willingness, our zeal, our joy in coming before Him. Jesus wants us to pray with confidence to our Father in Heaven. And this, this passage develops in three sections. The first section um, opens with, which one of you? And then he tells a parable of the impudent friend. Then, in the second section, verses 9-10, through is the Lord's promise for answered prayer. And then, ending as it began, he asks them, which father among you? So the first parable, which person among you? Now, which father among you? And we're to see the father's priority for his children. So let's, let's begin by looking at the parable of the impudent friend. And this isn't even as much a parable as much as it is a truism. Sometimes Jesus will do that. He'll lay something out that's meant to be self-evident. By the time he's done laying this out, all of Jesus' disciples are supposed to see it, grasp it, understand, and say, but of course. So let's read the parable of the impudent friend. He said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of fish. Three loaves, sorry. Loaf of fish, that, that sounds disgusting. Um, let's, let's begin again. He said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. He will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And so this, this parable or the story begins first with an importune request. And that's the word importune. In fact, some of your translations will, will translate what the ESV has as impudence in verse 8 as importunity. Importune. The word 
is, is original and unique. It's not original, it's unique to the Bible in this one passage. This word. It, it describes an urgent or persistent solicitation. A shamelessness. An impertinence. I remember, in fact, when I first started going to John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church, and if you think I'm taking a long time going through Luke, I'm not. Um, we, did, we did the prayer in one week. MacArthur did it in 12. So, um, and in fact, when you, when you start going to Grace Community Church, very quickly you learned that when you'd ask people how long they'd been there, rather than listing a year, they'd just list the book and chapter. So me, I, I started going to Grace Community Church in Luke 5. And eight years later when I left, he wasn't done, Luke. And so other people you'd meet and they'd, you know, when did you? We were here in 1 Corinthians. Oh, wow. That was a long time ago. But I remember sitting in church as MacArthur was explaining this word importunity, which is um, how the King James translates it, the NIV boldness, persistence, the New American Standard and Holman Standard, and um, impudence here. And, and importunity really is probably the best way to describe this. It, an urgent or persistent solicitation, sometimes annoyingly so. Um, pertinacious or solicitations of demands, troublesome or annoying. And as he's explaining this notion of importunity, one by one my friends who are sitting next to me begin to look at me. me. Apparently they, they thought I was gifted with the gift of importunity. Um, I just, it was a memorable moment for me. But, but, the, but the circumstance here is maybe unusual for us, but I think more usual and more understandable for, for Jesus' disciples in their context. Because in fact, he asked them, which of you, this isn't just a certain person, he's asking them, wouldn't you do the same thing? What's the scenario? The, this, this person, this impudent friend, has eaten his daily bread. And after he's eaten his daily bread and he's preparing for bed, an unexpected visitor arises. And hospitality, as we know from reading the Old Testament, we know from, from other sources, is a huge deal. Hospitality is the, the obligation of a host. And if your friend arrives, you're to set food before him. You're to be hospitable. You don't just say, well, wait until the morning, we'll get you something. And not only is this a burden and a responsibility for the host, but for the community as well. And so which among you, Jesus says to his disciples, if, if someone came late at night and surprised you after you had finished your own daily bread, would not then go to a friend? And that word friend is emphasized four times. Which of you who has a friend would say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. By the way, if you're going to wake up somebody, reminding them that they're your friend is probably a good idea. Um, You'll notice the friend doesn't identify him as a friend in return. It reminds me of uh, the proverb that says, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as a cursing. <laughs> so he wakes up his, his friend and neighbor looking for the bread that he needs. His daily bread is gone. He needs more for this responsibility. It's really not as radical as you'd think. And we get this, that things come up in our life that are important, that are urgent, timely, and, and we call on our friends, don't we? Um, some of us um, have, I've, I've both made the phone calls and received the phone calls for someone going into labor and someone needing to wash the kids, things like that. We, we get that. And we call our friends. What's actually more 
unusual or shocking is the friend's response. We have first an importune request, but it's followed by an unwilling response. Even though this person is identified three times as friend, the answer that he gives is is he's unwilling. What does he say in verse 7? Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. So this friend's response is, door's closed. You can't just come in and get the bread. And this is assuming that sort of the one-room home where there'd be a communal mat and everyone would sort of lie down on the communal mat together, keep each other warm. And the thought is this, I can't get up and unlatch the door and get you the bread without waking everyone else up in the household, so go away. And this is sort of shocking because even the Scriptures encourage for your friends and for these needs to, to supply them. Listen to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27-28. to 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is your power to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. But this man doesn't respond, doesn't seem to care his friend about the social custom. He doesn't care about the the need that is urgent, even the community's responsibility for hospitality. He tells him, go away. The door is shut. I'm in bed. Leave me alone. But then Jesus makes the point of all this. What's what's the point of this picture? What's the point of of explaining this truism? And here's the point. He says in verse 8, I tell you though, he will not get up. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, his importunity, his persistence, his boldness, various translations give it, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So what's the truism that Jesus is laying out? Excessive boldness will cause even an unwilling friend to answer your petition and supply your needs. Right? And we get that. So we'll turn to our friends and we'll hope that they'll give us what we need because they're our friends. But we know that if we um, persist long enough, we, we hit redial enough, eventually we're going to get what we need, right? So that's, that's the point that Jesus summarizes in laying out this truism. There's a lot of discussion. Why bring this up? Does, is Jesus telling us that God is like this friend and we need to just keep knocking and wake him up because he's gone to sleep? No, I don't think so. So what is the point of this parable? Well, I think he makes it in the next section, the Lord's promise for answered prayer. The Lord's promise for answered prayer. Here's the point. A, God is more faithful than any friend. See, this, this man thinks that he's calling on a friend. He cries out to him as friend. Jesus identifies him as friend. And yet, we all know that sometimes our friends don't act in a very friendly way towards us. Sometimes we catch him at an inconvenient hour, at a bad time. More so, God, like I said earlier, is someone that can be, and should be in many respects, quite intimidating. I mean, it wasn't the whole holiness code that God gave Israel meant to teach them that you don't just waltz up to God. You don't just show up however you please. You've got to go through purification rituals and cleansing rituals. You've got to offer sacrifices. You can only come so far. Doesn't the story of Nadab and Abihu who played fast and loose and got creative in their worship and were burned with fire from heaven teach us that you don't just come willy-nilly to God? Might not we be tempted to think that God is the ultimate potentate? Might be similar king of Assyria, 
In Esther 4.11, you remember when Esther's going to go petition the king? All the king's servants and people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. To be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Remember that? So Esther says, pray for me, I'm going to go see the king, but I'm going unsummoned. There's only one law. If you go to the king unsummoned, you're put to death, unless he holds out his golden scepter. So maybe we're tempted to think God's like that. And so Jesus lays out this truism. And in contrast to this truism, He wants us to see that God is far more faithful than any friend. God is not begrudging. God is not lying in bed asleep, getting perturbed and annoyed when you wake Him up. And the reason for that, as we'll see, if you keep reading through this passage, hinges upon His being our Father. Look at verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You don't have to be afraid that God is is like the king of Assyria. You don't have to be afraid that God is even like the reluctant friend. The point of this story is not be that be that bold, importune friend. You don't need to be that bold, importune friend because God is not this sleeping friend. God is a father. <coughs> And the God we serve never sleeps. Psalm 121, verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We don't need to be afraid that God is begrudging. I'm busy. Go away. Come back later. You know, sometimes you'll see those posters with the names of God on them. There's one name of God that usually gets dropped out, but the way James 1.5 describes God is literally, if any of you lacks anything, let him ask the giving to all and not reproaching God. I love that. If any of you lack anything, he must, imperative, James 1.5, ask the giving to all and not reproaching God. That's, you call that one of the names of God. The point Jesus is making, this is radical for his disciples and it should be radical for us. God is far more faithful than any friend. Consequently, we get to the center, the imperatives of this text, the two which among you center around these imperatives. These aren't suggestions. These aren't options. But he says in verse 9, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So, pretty straightforwardly, Jesus is saying we must be asking, seeking, and knocking. That's the emphasis of the verb. Present, continuous action. These are the types of things we're to be doing with regularity. Not seldom, not on special occasions. He's saying just ask, seek, knock. We've we've got to do it believing that God is not the, the stingy friend but that He is one who welcomes us. Because notice what He promises, point C. To everyone, to everyone who in this way prays to God, it will be given, they will receive, and it will be opened. I mean, isn't that wonderful? Everyone! Not just the, the good ones, not just the obedient ones necessarily, not just the ones who've shared their faith at least once this week, but Jesus doesn't qualify us. To everyone who asks, receives, who seeks, finds, the one who knocks will be open. Now, I do think there are some qualifications. 
This is all given within the context of a prayer addressed to Father, and we, we learned last week that calling God Father assumes that Christ has chosen to reveal His Father to you. It assumes that you're in a right relationship with Him through faith in His Son, that you are saved, born again. You've received His Spirit of adoption by whom we cry, All the Father. It assumes all the blessings of the new covenant. And I think further, it assumes that you're praying and keeping with the petitions that Christ has taught us. This is not a blanket promise that if you pray for a Lamborghini, well, if you ask and you seek and you knock, you'll get it. There are some churches in our land that sadly would teach that that is the case. But as you're praying those petitions, as you're asking that God would grant your eyes to be open to see His glory more greatly, that you would more hallow His name, as you're asking that God would rule in and through you, as you're asking that God would meet your needs, as you're asking that God would restore you to fellowship, as you're asking that God would be faithful to preserve you from an in temptation. Here's a carte blanche promise that if you ask that if you seek, that if you knock, He will not say to you, go away, I'm in bed. Like that friend, my door is locked. He's going to open it to you. He's going to give you what you're asking for. You will receive your request. If I could borrow that imagery, because God God is. God is, in, in a very real sense, in many passages in Scripture, a terrifying potentate and judge. He will rule and judge the world. All knees will bow before Him. All will stand before and give an account to Him. And that can be a terrifying thing. And, that, and just focusing on that truth can make us hesitate to come to Him in prayer. And Jesus teaches His disciples, no, this One who will judge the living and the dead is to you and has identified Himself to you and has revealed Himself to you and is truly to you a Father. I love this. Tim Keller has this great quote. He uh, tweeted a couple months ago. Um, if I can draw on that picture of, of Esther, terrified to go before the king because he might not hold out the scepter. Here's, here's Tim Keller's quote. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. We have that kind of access. The difference is, of course, this is a king who never sleeps. I love that. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. That's what Jesus is teaching to us. We don't have to be afraid that God's going to get annoyed. What again? I'm out of bread. It's inconvenient time. His friend says, no, my door is shut. God promises, no, I'll open the door. I'll give you what you need. I'll give you your requests. This is wonderful, lavish promises. Do you get how Jesus wants us to be encouraged? He doesn't want us to be frightened. He doesn't want us timid and, and, and keeping back. I'll just come bother God with the big stuff. Unqualified. Everyone. To everyone who asks, receives. One who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. The Lord's promise for answered prayer. That's the contrast. How much more is God to be generous and give? Which moves finally, point three, to the Father's priority for His children. The Father's priority for His children. 
And then moving from this central point, calling on us to ask, seek, and knock with our requests, to keep doing it, to keep bringing God our requests and our prayers. He gives this analogy. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So again, Jesus relies on another truism, another self-evident truth. He asks the question, which father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And the obvious answer is none. This goes against everything we understood about stand about parenthood. Parents don't, here's your blank, they do not mock or torment their children. And in the rare instances where they do, it makes news, doesn't it, when you hear about these things, because it's so unnatural, it so goes against everything in us, even unbelievers don't mock and torment their children. It doesn't mean I always give my children everything they ask for. But I don't mock their requests. And I don't give them dangerous gifts in return. Which father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion. And again, we're looking at these common daily requests, right? Jesus is, is, is linking off, I think, out of all four of the petitions that keep giving us our daily bread, keep giving us the things we need each day. This, this, in the first example, this man's run out of his daily bread. He's eaten his daily bread. And then unexpectedly, there's a need for more bread. And he goes to the friend for more bread. And the friend tells him to go away, but eventually will arise just because he wants to get rid of him. Then Jesus says, unlike that friend, God's will open when you knock to Him. And here we've got a son asking for food. And, and the very reason he asked this question, I think, is, is he's assuming, again, this fear. What if I go to God and God thinks my request is stupid? What if I go to God and God rebukes me? Why would you ask for that? Now, now be, be clear, the, the New Testament does make it clear that if we ask with wrong motives, according to James, we won't receive. But, but we're not going to get mocking responses. We're not going to get dangerous responses. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion? And, and if you've got children, you know this, they ask us for all sorts of things, don't they? At all hours of the day and night. My children have no hesitation to ask me for any number of things. And I never respond angrily. I never respond with, Here, here's a knife to play with, you know. That never happens. Don't always give them everything they ask for, but they're always welcome to come. Especially with genuine needs like this. I need food, I'm hungry. So that's true with us, right? Point B. We who are evil still give our children good gifts. That's, that's the point. That's the truism. We who are evil, and he's speaking to his disciples in a very real sense, even though we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're still evil. We're imperfect parents, imperfect fathers. And the truism is this. Even though we're corrupted by sin, this, this connection between parent, father, and child doesn't break. Now, now get this. If that's true with us, Here's the hinge of Jesus' argument. I think the argument of the whole passage. How much more 
will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? At this point, I want to pause and, and make what I think is a crucial point. And, I, and my pastor's pen article for February is my attempt to lay my thoughts down on this even more fully. But we are wrong if we think that God is just sort of like a father. As if when God chose to reveal Himself to us, He's sort of looking around for some sort of suitable comparison. Hmm, fathers, that'll do. Okay, I'm kind of like that. If that was the case, if, if me being a father is the reality and God is sort of like that, this argument doesn't work. This argument of Jesus does not work if, if God is simply like a father. No, I, I think that when God set up the universe, when God made the man and woman in the garden in His image to reflect His glory, He created those institutions. Just as we learned, He created marriage in Genesis 2, according to Paul in Ephesians 5, to picture the Gospel. So He created the family relationships that He might, in the fullness of time, reveal to us. You know what being a father to a son is like? You know all those relationships that you see around you? That's sort of like me. In other words, God is the Father. Because the argument is, if human, sinful fathers do this, how much more will the real, the authentic, the original Father do this? And that's good news, because I know some of you have had difficult fathers. I know some of you think of your relationships to your fathers with pain. The danger is we can then say, okay, is God like that? I mean, some of you have had fathers who abandoned you, abandoned their families. And you could be in danger of thinking, okay, if God's my Father, is He going to do the same thing? No. God is the Father. All fathers on earth are meant to reflect dimly His fatherhood. And if your fathers on earth have failed you, if your fathers on earth have harmed you, here's a Father who won't. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him Notice the much greater generosity of our Heavenly Father. The much greater generosity of our Heavenly Father. In other words, take every good thing you know about human parents and fathers, every beautiful thing you've seen, every touching picture of kindness and goodness between human fathers and their children, everything that's right, everything that's true, God the Father is so much greater and better of a father to you. That's what he's saying. Take every good thing you know about earthly parents and fathers. How much more is God the Father? You see how everything hinges on our really believing and understanding God is our Father. This isn't just a word we use about Him. It's a reality. It's how we get past being afraid that He won't want me to come forward. It's how we get past being afraid that He's going to send us away because the door is closed. And here Jesus is teaching His disciples <laughs> how much more Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, at this point, if you're like me, you, you find the introduction of the Holy Spirit here, at least initially, a little odd. Well, where did that come from? I mean, we're talking about the four petitions, none of which apparently involved the Holy Spirit. You know, God, may your name be revered. May I be obedient. Might you give me the things I need? Might you forgive my sins? Might you not lead me into temptation? And in this context, immediately the son's asking for a fish, an egg, 
Where did the Holy Spirit come from? In fact, in, in Matthew, when Jesus teaches this, different, different event, different time and place, the response is, how much more will your Father give you the things you need? It makes sense. That's what you'd expect. But Jesus here introduces the Holy Spirit. That seems odd, and that's, that's the point here. He freely gives the Holy Spirit. Where did that come from? Now, some people see in here a narrowing. I mean, after all, Jesus has made these lavish and unqualified promises that everyone who asks receives, that everyone who seeks finds, that everyone who knocks it is opened. And so in, the, in that thought, Jesus is narrowing. Well, even though you ask for all these things, I'm just going to give you the Holy Spirit. Well, I like, I like what John MacArthur has to say on this. I'm going to read an extensive quote from him. Um, the whole point of this is not God's going to narrowly give us some prescribed things if we happen to hit the target. The whole idea is come and ask for whatever is on your heart and rush into God's presence whenever you want, of course with a measure of humility and reverence, but still with a bare heart, speaking boldly. You can expect that God who is generous will give you whatever is good. Now, how does the Holy Spirit fit in? Here's what he writes. You ask for comfort, He'll give you the comforter. You ask for help, He's given you the helper. You ask for truth, He's given you the spirit of truth and teacher. You ask for power, He's given you a spirit of power. You ask for wisdom, He's given you a spirit of wisdom. You ask for guidance, He's given you the guide. You ask for love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, and He gives you the spirit who bears that fruit in your life. You see, this is the generosity of God. You ask for the gift, He gives the giver. You ask for the effect, He gives the cause. You ask for the product, He gives you the source. And if you think through those requests that, that Jesus taught us to pray, think of the Holy Spirit's role. And how else are you and I going to revere God's name? Except that the Spirit would open our eyes. That the Spirit would apply God's Word. And how else are we to become obedient to the King and His rule but by walking in the Spirit? What Jesus is, is pointing to is the, the, the super generosity of God over and above these petty things we ask for. And bring them, bring them. The, the, the fish, the egg, the bread. He's going to give us the Holy Spirit. And of course, by bringing that up, Jesus is, is making all sorts of Old Testament connections. Turn, turn in your Bible to Ezekiel 36. We spent some time looking at this last week. And I just want to return again to Ezekiel chapter 36. Here's the, the promised new covenant. And last week we were looking at how God was going to make this covenant and redeem His people for His name's sake. How that tied into the prayer that His name would be hallowed. Here, I want you to see what He specifically promises Ezekiel 36. Because Jesus' disciples would pick up on this. Luke expects us, the reader, to pick up on this. This promise of the Holy Spirit doesn't come out of nowhere. It's got all sorts of Old Testament messianic expectations. Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. Forgive us our trespasses. And you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put 
my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So when Jesus brings this now over the top, wonderful promise, not only are we welcome to come in day or night, not only will we not be turned away, not only will He give us the things we need, He will give us the one thing we most need, His Holy Spirit. And in doing so, He will be bringing and giving us and showering on us the blessings of the new covenant. This is, this is the days that Joel spoke of, the Messianic age, Joel 2.28. It shall come to pass afterwards that I'll pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And here Jesus is saying, you're to come to your Father with all your needs, and over and above all your requests, He's going to pour His Spirit out on you. There's one more point in this that I think is worth noting, and that is this. Again, through this gift, He treats us as His sons. And again, I want to emphasize, I think the true most single point of this entire passage that we get our heads wrapped around is when God says He's our Father. When Jesus teaches us to approach God as Father, He means it. That's not just some title. He is our Father. Now think of this. Up until this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is the only one with the audacity, the boldness, and yet He consistently refers to God as His Father, does He not? We just saw back earlier in chapter 10. Just listen to how many times in verse 21. In the same hour He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. Yes, Father, for such is Your gracious will. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son. Jesus has, has made use of repeatedly his privilege, his right, his relationship to call God Father. And at the beginning of this prayer, he says to his disciples, you know what? You get to share in that too. Now I need to be clear, Jesus is son to the Father in a very different way than we become sons and daughters. We're adopted sons and daughters. He is, he is a homeborn child. He is the, the, the truly begotten of the Father. But yet, we get to share in this sonly and daughterly right as well. No longer is it just Jesus saying, Father, now Jesus, again, will make this clear. It's not the same. In fact, in John's Gospel, he'll say, I go to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Jesus will not say our Father or our God. His relationship to the Father as Son is different than ours. Yet here is a similarity. We both get to call God Father. Well, what's another peculiar evidence of the sonship of Jesus? When does God first say in Luke's Gospel, this is my beloved Son? When Jesus is baptized and receives the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has characterized Jesus' ministry in this point. Even in the passage we just read, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And now, wonder of wonders, Jesus reveals that His disciples and His followers will share in some way in calling God their Father. Likewise, they will also share in the re- being, receiving the Holy Spirit. God means it when He says we're His sons and daughters, when He says He's our Father. And here are at least are two ways that He treats us similarly to His one true Son, 
Jesus. We call him Father, and we will receive his Spirit. Now, as we prepare to sing our closing song, I'd like to close in prayer and I call the worship team up. But I, I, I can't emphasize enough as I've been thinking through this, the importance of believing this, approaching like this, looking to our Father, not cringing like a dog does who's done something naughty when we come in prayer. But, but according to Hebrews, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us come with confidence. Let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll sing. Lord God, Father, we come before You wondering and marveling that we have the access of children to a Father. The rest of the universe trembles in fear and awe. The angels cover their eyes and their feet. And we draw near. We draw near not just with our petitions that You would glorify Yourself in our sight. We do ask for that, Lord. And we ask that You would make us more obedient servants. We also ask for our daily needs. Lord, there are those among us who have financial needs. We have also many daily needs that You would we pray that You would grant. We ask that You would forgive our sins, Lord. Those things that we've done this today, even this morning, even in this past hour, that have put a damper, a separation in our relationship, our fellowship with You, Lord. We pray that You would restore our fellowship. And, and Lord, we pray as we move on into this new year that You would you would be with us, that You would keep us from temptation and in trials that You would cause us to stand. And Lord, we rejoice knowing that as we come as Your obedient children, we will receive these things we ask for. You will not turn us away. You will not mock our requests. You will not give us serpents and scorpions when we ask for the very things that You've taught us to ask for. But Lord God, ultimately we rejoice in the gift of Your Spirit, the giver of all good gifts. And through Him You have redeemed and brought us to faith. Through Him You have taught us Your Word. Through Him You have given us life and light in what were once dead, dark, and stone hearts. Help us to believe you have been this good so far to us. We'll continue to be good. Help us to trust you day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the closing song.